When I was around 20 years old, I discovered, or Christ, I should say, discovered me. And having been raised in an environment that was at best nominally Christian, but more or less uh, didn't go to church, and, and, and pretty much any time I heard the name Jesus mentioned, uh, within the context that I lived, it was always in a context of wanting to qualify or wanting to pull back. Don't take it too seriously. That was pretty much the resounding message. Just don't wear it on your collar or your sleeve or whatever the saying is. I remember then when I did put myself into Christ's care, when I prayed to receive Christ and, and um, through a series of things, and the first feeling that I got when I went home or I went back into the context of where I'd been living, my friends and the things we did, I felt strange. I felt like a stranger in a place that was always so comfortable to me. Now, as I've been ministering and being blessed to, to see people come out of an old life in an old world the way that I did, I have found that that is a unanimous feeling. There is this strange sense, if you are a Christian and you are acting like a Christian, that you feel yourself as a Christian to be a stranger in an environment and in a place that is also homey and familiar. I wonder, what are you expecting from life and about life if you're a Christian here? Perhaps you're not a believer. You're here and you're the way I was at the age of 20 being dragged to church by a friend and I'm listening with skepticism. And I can remember that very well. Everything that I've been taught in an informal way was that act. Nope, don't take this. Nope, 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 nope. Be, be resistant. Don't, don't listen. To, don't go too far. It's, it's a good religion on Christmas. It's a good religion on other days when it's special when you get married. And, and yes, I respect the church, but just kind of keep it in a safe place. And I remember those days well. What are you expecting, Christian? Or perhaps someone wanting to think about becoming a Christian? Well, again, if there is a common theme in all of the Scripture as to how the true people of God's covenant feel throughout the ages, it is that they never feel at home here. Here on earth, I mean. Here in the world that surrounds them, surrounds them. They experience life here as strangers in their own land. This is perfectly summarized in the book of Hebrews. After reflecting on the whole of redemptive history, beginning with Adam through the patriarchs all the way up to Christ, the Hebrews author in chapter 11, verse 13, has this summarizing statement about how all of God's people have always felt on earth. Here it is. These all died in faith, not having received the things they had hoped for, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
the apostles picked this theme up even after Christ's example, where he, like Peter or James and others, would address the church as exiles in the diaspora, as resident aliens in their world. We come now to this passage again in Matthew, and Matthew is careful to frame this passage that that Christ is come, the great Savior King of the world. He is the one who really can fulfill the kind of messianic hopes and prayers and expectations that we and the people even of his day ordinarily put on our politics or on our economics or on our institutions of learning, these incredible hungry desires to see this world change and be different from the world that we see filled with scorn and curse and malice and anger and unrest and suffering. Into that world comes the Savior King, and what would the world do? How would the world feel about it? We saw then in that following sermon last week, I think it was, that, that well, the world, most of the world, received him not. Amazing. We see how the world, particularly the world where that was inhabited with, with self-lordship or power and prestige, Christ and the thought of this Savior King who would come and challenge their lordship, however it had been co-opted with the world, was a threat, was an inconvenience. We see that in two ways. We saw it. We saw it in the civil sphere with Herod took great offense and threat at the thought of a king of the Jews, for wasn't he the Roman-appointed king of the Jews? And then we saw it as well in the religious sphere. Those who had co-opted with the state and with the Romans at that time to have a convenient hegemonic relationship with Rome, that is to say the church being given a kind of populist power acceptance as long as the church doesn't speak like prophets. As long as the church stays tame and does what the church wanted to do in the first place, which is to make the world a better place, but in the terms of Rome. And that is, that is the agreement that it took place with the Roman authorities and the temple authorities that were described, both of which received him not. And then there were the Magi, the people outside of the establishment, outside of the power and the wealth and, and all of the popularity and prestige, and there they were of another religion. But they had a tradition within their own religion of the coming of Messiah, and when they heard and saw the signs of it, they rushed to worship him and were converted to Christ. Isn't that a strange story? Are you really thinking about what we're hearing here? What are you expecting, Christian? What would that story look like for us? Matthew was concerned. Remember, he is writing to a people who in their attempt to follow after Christ are a people who have been warned indeed that they would suffer as Christ suffered. And you can imagine then how it was that 
in the context of that, in the context of hoping and thinking that the great messianic kingdom had come, like many of you today are hoping as a Christian will come into your life, that when they began to suffer, when they began to be scorned, when they began to feel strange in the world that they were trying to save and to love, well, I suspect there was a little bit of a, hmm, this isn't what I expected. Matthew's aware of that. He's writing his gospel. You'll see it over and over and over again. And now today, we are very carefully drawn into Christ's earliest days. And masterfully, Matthew will want to tell us that it's not unexpected. That in these most beginning of days on earth, that he was a stranger and an exile. It defines the whole spirituality of Christianity by virtue of this passage that will be picked up over and over again as we go through the Gospels. And so he quotes prophets carefully and meticulously. He attaches what's happening to Christ with what the prophets said would happen so that we as Christians would know this is what it's like. This is how it feels to be a follower of Christ. I don't know that we want to hear this, honestly. I know I don't. I mean, let's just be honest. I just want to live in peace. I just want to have a good life. I want to see my kids flourish. I just, I want to be happy. You know, just come on. And with that comes much of the prophets around us as that was in Jeremiah, saying, peace, peace with the world, peace, peace with the world. And I go, yeah, if this was really legit, if my Christianity was really legit, I, then, then I would see it become popular, of course. I would see it get places of authority and control in the world. I would see it have influence in the civil spheres and in the academic spheres and all these other spheres. And somehow I'll know if this is legit, if the Holy Spirit is with this movement that we call Christianity, it's going to be making it in the world. Enter Jesus Christ. How do we reconcile that? Let's pray. Help me, help us. Father, what a terrifying thought that this pulpit would be pronounced as those prophets in the Old Testament were pronounced. It's not being sent from you. Lord, help us to want your prophesying here today. Through your scripture, may it be faithfully given to our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So verse 13, 15. He begins to tell you the story of what happened after the Magi left. It literally starts off, Now when they, the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph. I mean, he hasn't even been finished worshipped by the Magi before we got an announcement. And what was the announcement? I mean, come on, man. Let the kid have a little bit of peace. Let him have a little bit of happiness. Come on, coddle him a little bit. Come on, enjoy this beautiful moment with your baby. 
What is the angel of the Lord going to say to Joseph? Get up. Rise. And take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you to come back. For Herod is searching to destroy him and all other little children like him. To make sure that he gets them. What does Joseph do? No back talk. With incredible precision, it's stated in a way that you would know that he's doing exactly what Joseph, the angel, has said. It says literally, when it says, get up, arise, Joseph then is told to be, he got up and he arose and he took the child and his mother by night. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. He's spoken there, out of Egypt I called my son. Again, the obedience of Joseph is accentuated by an exact reputation. Get up and take. Then with Bertine, and he got up and he took. Joseph again is presented as a very godly man. But in the night, doesn't that just make you sick? Carefully, quietly, sneakily. No one's looking. Our Savior came, the Messiah, the one who created all things into existence, the one who came and emptied himself of his glory that he might serve us and save us and love us and forgive us, is now on the run in fear of his life. And he's hardly lived life of a child. The son of man now running for his life exiled into Egypt. Now the story is wanting to tell, be told it's, it's again, it's just, you just gotta appreciate this. Uh, it's hard but I'll try to help. But it's, it's amazing how it's told not only as a answer to prophecy expectations so that you wouldn't think this is out of the ordinary but it's also stated in a way that you would immediately associate what's happening with, with Jesus, with what happened to Israel, and particularly Moses. Exodus 2.15 describes the same story. How Pharaoh was seeking after all little children, baby males to kill because he heard that there was a savior of Israel, that being Moses, from among the ranks. And how it was that Moses also had to flee for his life. It's a common theme. How Christ will be presented throughout Matthew's gospel as the second and greater Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15 tells us to expect this. That the Lord, your God, will raise up for you another prophet like unto me, says Moses. He will be a greater prophet. You will listen to him. The quote from Hosea is in chapter 11. Again, out of Egypt have I called my son. And there it's stated when Israel was a child. It's when he was a child, Israel, that I loved him. And out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, this is significant. Do you know what the word Israel means in Hebrew? My son. Israel, the corporate Israel of God, the covenant people of God, being the sons of and daughters of God are now being represented by Moses, their Savior, 
prophet king as he would lead them out of Egypt in their bondage. When Israel was a child, Christ now is that child. Christ becomes the Israel fulfilled, the covenant child, if you will. It's very interesting how carefully the Moses story embodies Israel, how God will bring him out of Egypt in the salvation event, just like Christ would come out of Egypt in his salvation event. How it would be that Moses would suffer as Christ would suffer. The, the Christ story embodies Israel, and particularly Moses. Like Moses Israel, he was protected in Egypt. Like Moses Israel, he came out of Egypt with a great salvation. Christ himself would have to live as a captive in his own world, the creator of it all, incarnate now as an exile. Here we see how Christ is presented as having an uncomfortable relation to the world. Who has at once come to love the world, even to save it, and yet the world knew him not, and in fact came after him. The Messiah as a threat to the world's lordship. An inconvenience to their neat and tidy relationship with the idols of this world. That brings us to the second prophecy, spoken by Jeremiah 31, 15, verse 16 through 18. The Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, came, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, for she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is especially important. For when there was the destruction of the infants, we know that Rachel, the mother of Israel at the time, was weeping. By the way, do you know where Rachel was buried? You got it, Bethlehem. This mother of Israel, now weeping the loss of the children of Israel, here in prophetic prose, pointing us back to the Exodus 1, verses 15 through 22, and the slaughter of the male babies at the time of Moses' birth. This second fulfillment again is dealt with in the way that Rachel due to the exile of her children, was weeping. But what's interesting about this passage, and it mirrors something that's going to be said again by Jeremiah in chapter 21, and we'll get to that as you heard it read earlier, but how Rachel was unwilling to be at peace with it. That's the way you could translate this last verse. She refused to be comforted. There was no peace. In Rachel. She rejected that peaceful alliance with a world who would kill the children. But more significantly, she was unwilling to accept that alliance with the world that she knew 
she needed saving from and who needed saving as well. Again, we have this amazing sorrow surrounding the birth of Christ, the exiled resident alien of the world. Again, Christ is presented as having an uncomfortable relationship with the world who has at once come to love the world, even to save it, and yet the world knew him not as a Messiah, but as a threat to their own lordship. And finally, the third prophecy. There in verse 19 through 23, how it is when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, rise, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of the father of Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this is a curious passage because he's going back to his homeland. And yet, again, it is discovered in so many ways that his homeland still was not safe. And so he goes to what at the time would have been called the land of the dogs. Galilee, the place of Nazareth. This is after the prophecies, particularly in Isaiah 53 and Psalms 22, where the Messiah is described as contemptible, as something that was of low status and low regard. They refer to the reality that the Nazareth was esteemed as a lowly place and to be from Nazareth was therefore evidence of unattractiveness in the world. Again, here's this savior of the world. A Nazarene? Saith anyone living in Israel? Are you kidding me? Remember in the passage, maybe you know it later, but in John chapter 7, surely, I'm quoting 7 verse 41, surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? This is as it was prophesied. Maybe you're familiar with Isaiah 53, for instance. How it describes the Messiah as contemptible, as, as not attractive, as someone who was suffering, is a suffering servant, and, and the world will look at him and be disgusted with his lowliness, with his poverty, with his powerlessness, with his lack of popularity. This was not the popular kid on the block kind of a boy at least in the way of redemptive history, is concerned. A Nazarene in the land that the Jews thought was defiled. Well, you know, these things aren't written for no reason. What do you think Matthew's trying to say? It's interesting, after this passage, the one you'll hear next out of Matthew is immediately we, we go to John the Baptist. And remember, these Gospels are written not in an exact chronological order, but, but in a theologically themed order. He tells the story. He narrates the history, the real historicity of Christ. That's important. There's nothing myth going on here. But he narrates it in a way to tell you something theologically and spiritually about life. 
and particularly about the saving work of Christ. And so right from here, you go from this presentation of the great Savior King who would include Gentiles to the next passage where he's rejected by all those you would expect to love him and he's received by those you wouldn't expect to love him. And then you see this exiled Jesus as he's running for his life in the dark of night with no place to lay his head, a theme that will continue throughout the New Testament about Christ. And then you next come to a passage which calls for repentance. A reminder that for those who are believers, you just can't do it conveniently. It's just not possible given who we are in our sin. There's a call to repentance, to turn away from the world. We have this John the Baptist. I wonder how John the Baptist would fit into our little nominal, polite Christianity today. I wonder what he would look like today. How would those comfortable in the Christian America alliance, however and in whatever side of the political divide you are, because it's happening in all divides, how would they respond to this John the Baptist who says, repent, who comes in sackcloth and ashes and says, repent, turn away? Well, we know how they responded. The same antagonists that were against Christ were against Paul, against John. The scribes and the Pharisees reject him and mocked him, and Herod cut his head off. Wow, this is boding well, isn't it, Christians? Really? I mean, are we getting a little unsettled here? I am. Just preaching it to you. But it's, it's there. I don't know how else to read it. This is crazy stuff. But is it? As we began, it's the way it's always been. Always. Never a time when true Israel, often inside of a greater Israel, but the true and covenantal Israel was Israel in exile from its very inception. Strangers in their own land. Often at odds with a greater Israel that had formed the alliances with the other lords. Matthew does not merely narrate the unfortunate circumstances of Jesus' early life on earth. Rather, he narrates them as a fulfillment of Old Testament expectations for the Messiah after the pattern established by the prototype of Moses, Israel, so that all Christians everywhere who were seeking to follow after Christ and found themselves not feeling at home anymore in this world might be encouraged. You're not alone. You're not alone. It's to be expected. You're on a journey. And it's to the promised land, to be sure. And we know this earth will be transformed to be that promised land. It's real. But we must follow Christ in his journey to it as witnesses. J.C. Ryle summarizes this passage this way. Observe how the Lord Jesus was a man of great sorrows. Even from his infancy, Trouble awaits him as soon as he enters into the world. It was only a type and a figure of all his experience upon earth. The waves of humiliation began to beat over him even when he was sucking 
is a sucking child. Christ, a resident in this world, a world that he himself created and made, a world that he himself came to save, is an alien in his incarnation, treated as a threat and an inconvenience. His identity is power, his wisdom, his threat to the identity, power, and wisdom of the world was always in conflict. And the emphasis, of course, is clear. For those who would be thinking, maybe this is all a hoax, because, man, I became a Christian, and it's created an uneasy tension with my family that are not believers, or an uneasy tension with my world, people I like, my friends, an uneasy tension with my employer, with my university, with my colleagues, my friends. I want to be careful here. Peter warns, as, he, as Peter will tell you that this is what you're to expect, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you, Christian. Did not Christ tell you that would happen? But then he goes on to qualify, but hey, make sure your suffering is not because, well, you're acting like a jerk. That's my paraphrase. No. Christians, as they put their best heart and effort into seeing the welfare of their city and seeking social justice and mercy and love, Christians who are out there trying to make the world a better place, trying to be a witness to love and forgiveness and grace, it stings, it hurts to find that you are still an alien, doesn't it? I feel your pain. Christ feels your pain. And we feel Christ's pain. You know that quote that I put in the meditation I think it's a good time to read it. This is a quote from Ellen Davis. She says it this way. The sufferer who keeps looking for God has, in the end, a privileged knowledge. She passes through a door that only pain will open and is thus qualified to speak of God in a way that others whom we generally call more fortunate, cannot speak. For us, the true measure of our wisdom will never be the grade point average we covet. A degree or a rank, the right job, the book accepted by a prestigious press, no. We will be wise when we desire with heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Only the things that God also desires for us, and nothing also else compels us or ever catches our wandering eye. Oh, that wandering eye. Did I relate to that? You see what she's saying? The fact of the matter is that your witness, the very integrity and authenticity of your witness, that will direct people to a kind of salvation that the powers and wisdom of this world cannot accomplish, it's that witness that sees a kind of power that has absolutely no rationale if, according to human or worldly uh, advantage. It's, it's the Job theme all over again for those who follow Christ, where his authenticity, we read about Job, why? Because everyone could discredit his witness and faith in Christ as long as God was giving him all the worldly pleasures 
take away those worldly pleasures? Oh, we'll see what, Mo, Job, what Job does. And sure enough, those who are informed with a worldly worldview of Christ, I know that seems like an oxymoron, but it comes together quite a bit, where we impose these temporal categories as to what it would look like for the Holy Spirit to be upon a man. Oh, he's a blessed person. And we mean by that what? You know. Well, that's what they did to him. They came to him. I mean, you just heard for this guy. He's just lost everything. And then here comes the nominal Christian establishment world that says, you're just not walking with the Lord, Job. Get it together, man. Oh, how much that must have hurt. Can't imagine it. Losing your family, your life work. And it's because I'm a bad Christian. There's a theme here. I could just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. David, all of them felt it. You see, here's how Matthew will conclude or bring out the story as the Gospels continue. They came to Jesus in Matthew 8. Teacher, they said, I will follow you wherever you go. it. There was sincerity there. I know that sincerity. You know that sincerity. You've said those words. Many of you, most of you probably if you're Christian. I'm in, Lord. I'm in. I'm in. But have we really thought about that? What it means to be in? Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you willing to be in exile? Are you willing to be a stranger and not at home? John 15 records the same kind of conversation. Remember the word that I said to you, said Jesus. Servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Do we really believe and expect this? Or are we surprised? It's even while being faithful, whether Christians or pastors or elders or whatever, that you might be mocked, as in a Galilean. You might be scorned, as in a fraud. You might be persecuted, as in feel animosity and resistance. To follow after Christ, which is to let him be Lord of your life, will put you in conflict. It's just the fact of redemptive history. We come to a meal, and we're reminded of this very thing. Jesus doesn't institute a ceremony of ascension wherein we're to remember that we will one day ascend with him into a great and beautiful and glorified place. He wants us to remember the cross. You know, in Jeremiah 29, you heard it there, it's another uh, exile uh, commentary. 
And we're told there in Terah 9 that the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles. Here he's talking to those who are of Judah, who were exiled into Babylon. He tells them on the one hand, be a resident. Settle down into the world. Be in the world. Build your houses and live in them. Plant your gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take take uh, bear, bear sons and daughters so that they can bear sons and daughters and multiply your families and, and et cetera, et cetera. It goes on. And seek even the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on their behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You always stop there if you're familiar with chapter 29. I wonder why. Because the very next passage says, in other words, in a big, bold, B-U-T, but, however, for thus saith the Lord, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream of. For it is a lie. They are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Man, whew, that puts shivers in my back that I would hear a prophet like that or, God forbid, be a prophet like that. But unfortunately, and I think it was a mistake on my part, so I'll take it, but you didn't get the next line. Here it is. What were they preaching? Oh, it's so horrible. And here it is. They had healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. There it is. To expect that exiles would live in peace with the world is a lie. That's the point. It's that common. There's this happy sadness that a Christian will live, according to John Piper. There's a happiness to, to participate in Christ and his mission, to share in his sufferings, to be have the great privilege of witnessing to the world, a happiness that loves the world, genuinely loves the world, cries about the world, is compassionate to the world, a happiness about doing the work that is to the welfare of the world. There, there is a kind of happiness that Christians have. We're not doing this as cynics. We're not doing this as, as skeptical. We're not doing this in resignation. We are pouring ourselves into all that we do in life that might help this world be a better place. It makes us happy to do our work and to do it well unto the Lord in a manner that will make our world and its welfare prosper, in a good way prosper, you know what I mean? But there's a sadness, because we're never quite one of them. We're never quite accepted among them, and we are always of another drummer, another Lord, that unexpectedly but oftenly puts us in conflict with the very people we love and want to serve. Peace, peace, when there is no peace, there's a sadness. This world is not what I'm hoping for yet. 
So we persevere. With happiness. We grieve, but not as others grieve. We grieve with hope. We persevere. Life is short. It's worth it. And be of good cheer, says Christ. For I have overcome 